The Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 35. This is the day that we partake of the Lord's Supper, and every once in a while, I feel to remind you what the Lord's Supper really means. John 6, 35, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 53, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Look toward your neighbor and say, Jesus, Jesus. wants to be very close to you. Tell them again, Jesus, Jesus wants, to be wants to be very close, very close to, you. to you. Please be seated. Some of those who heard these words of Jesus interpreted them literally. And then they used their literal and improper interpretation as a reason to reject Jesus and as a reason to reject his teaching. He had elaborated enough for them to know that he was not actually talking about eating his flesh. He was not actually talking about drinking his blood. You know, some people give extreme interpretations to certain biblical doctrines and then they reject those doctrines because they are so extreme. In reality, it's not the doctrines that are extreme. It is the interpretation that they give them that is extreme. But then there were others there who understood that Jesus was speaking metaphorically, that he was using symbols. He was using the eating of flesh and the drinking of blood to illustrate or symbolize the message that he was conveying. But even though they understood that he was speaking symbolically and metaphorically, they still rejected the extreme claims that he seemed to be making for himself. Thus, those who had chosen to misunderstand him, and then those who refused to accept the exalted claims he made about himself, went away from him and followed him no longer. They no, no longer acknowledged him. They no longer listened to him. It's not always the fault of the preacher when people leave. Amen. Sometimes it is. I want you to know I'm up here doing the best I can. Swinging with everything I've got. So sometimes it's my fault when people leave, but it's not always the fault of the preacher when people leave. Under certain circumstances, 
when people do not and will not assent to certain, biblical, certain basic biblical teachings, when they will not obey the word of God or the preaching of the gospel, it may be best that they should leave. One preacher said he had a membership drive at his church, drove out 15. <laughs> Everything got peaceful after that. People who are just around for the enjoyment will leave when they are asked to make sacrifices and inconveniences for the work of the Lord. They need to leave before the real challenge comes rather than during the challenge. Jesus knew that he had come to a critical point in his relationship to those who comprise the multitude. Prior to that time, he had given many signs of God's special presence within him and of God's sanction on his teaching and his sanction on his ministry. He fed 5,000 men by miraculously multiplying five barley loaves and two small fish. And when the multitude had finished eating, there were still 12 baskets of food left over. By this time, and when this happened, the people were ready to proclaim Jesus as a king. And they were willing to become his subjects. Anyone who fed them so miraculously was one whom they wanted to be around, one whom they wanted to be with. If someone would snap his finger and a full spread from Laurie's would always be on the table, I think all of us would be showing up on every afternoon just to see how that friend was doing and hoping he'd invite us in for dinner. But Jesus sought to escape them. He wanted to get away from them because he had a clear concept of the kind of person he wanted to be and also he had a clear concept of the kind of people that he wanted to follow and to be with him. He knew that it was not his role to become an earthly king. Of course, if he had desired to become an earthly king, no king in all of history would ever have surpassed Jesus Christ. But Jesus was already king of kings. He was already lord of lords. And we need to know that there is no higher role on earth for you than the role God has chosen for you. Would you say that to your neighbor? There's no higher role on earth than the role God has chosen for you. If you look to people, we may miss what God has in store for us. And so Jesus had a clear vision of who he was and where he was going. And every person needs a clear vision of who you are and where you're going. You need to know the kind of person that you want to be and the kind of accomplishments that you want to make in your life. You need to know the kind of person that God wants you to be. Don't take your signal from the views and from the concepts and from the attitudes of people, but in the closet of your own mind, develop a concept of yourself and pursue that concept. Pursue what you would do with your life 
and then no matter what, put your hand in God's hand and set out to accomplish what God gives you the dream you will accomplish. And so Jesus knew this. And he also knew the kind of people he wanted to have around him. Every person needs to think that through because you become like what you associate with. And if you associate with the wrong thing, they will pull you down and life for you will become less than life ought to be. Yes, if you can help folk, help them, but don't hang around so long that they began to drag you down from the high standard and goal that you have set for your life. I think that Jesus knew that many people would leave him when he spoke the words of this text. He could easily have taught a different lesson, preached a different message, said things in a different way, but then he would not have been true to himself. He would not have been true to God the Father. And so what he said in the text was so important to him that he was willing to lose some of his followers just to say it. Large numbers alone do not necessarily indicate that a movement is legitimate. I said big numbers don't just indicate legitimacy. Truth and righteous principles are more important than popularity. Can I hear a church say amen? And so Jesus said to them in John 6, 26, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. So all they wanted was food. They wanted Jesus to operate a perpetual food program. They followed him for loaves and not for love. And so the miraculous provision of food and physical healing were indicated by Jesus to convince them of the spiritual realities behind the miracle and to lift them to the level where they would uh, seek spiritual values. They weren't supposed to get fixated on the food, but they were supposed to say, if he can miraculously provide food, then we want to know what he can provide for us spiritually and morally and religiously. And Jesus would warn the church today not to become so obsessed with physical or material provisions. Don't become obsessed with prosperity. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 31, take no thought of these things. He would not want us to build the church around a quest for miracles, around a quest for physical healing. Now God performs miracles. God is a healer, does anybody believe that? But it's not all about healing. In John 6, 27, Jesus said, labor not for meat that perishes, but for the meat that endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. In other words, build the church around, set your heart on that which will bring everlasting life. Everlasting life, a right relationship with God, 
the blessing of God, the sanction of God on our lives are the most important things that we might pursue. And so Jesus in the text is striving, struggling, agonizing to find words and metaphors that will convey the intimacy and the intricacy which is possible in our relationship with him. He can become a part of us. We can become a part of him. You can become a part of him. And he can become a part of you. He in us and we in him. He does not want a cold, distant, impersonal relationship with you. He wants a living, loving, dynamic fellowship with you. He wants to be your intimate friend. He wants to bear your frailties. He wants you to feel and bear his power. Jesus wants to be very close to you. Say that to your neighbor. Jesus wants to be very close to you. The richness of our relationship as brothers and sisters is illustrated and increased by the fact that we sometimes sit down at the table. We partake of food with one another. We enjoy good fellowship and a wonderful time together. And the richness of our fellowship with God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is symbolized by the fact that we occasionally sit or stand or gather around the sacred table and receive the Lord's Supper. Romans 5 and 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord's Supper symbolizes the peace and the love that we enjoy with God and that we enjoy with one another through Jesus Christ. It is important that we understand that this table implies that we are a family, that we are gathering for the family meal, that we love one another, that we are brothers and sisters, that we as a church are one, one God, one Lord, one spirit. If I, by love, show my relationship and my concern with you, then I illustrate the meaning of this table. I need you. You need me. We are a part of God's body. I'll pray for you. You pray for me. We need one another. So I will defend each man as my brother, each man as my friend. Look over at your neighbor and tell your neighbor, I need you. So the Lord's Supper, the communion, the sacrament, which we celebrate today, illustrates just how close Jesus wants to be to us. You know, we sometimes complain about how expensive our meals are. Amen. These restaurants are laying it on us kind of heavy. You look at the menu and almost lose your appetite. So we complain about how expensive 
our meals are. But I want to say to you that every meal is expensive, even when it doesn't cost us anything. For what we consume when we consume food is we consume life itself. Fowl and cattle, swine, fish, assorted forms of animal and vegetable life die that we might live. Amen. In the past, when we were living in suburbia, in the rural area, we would prepare our own food for consumption. Never remember my mama going out and getting that chicken, grabbing him by the head, and doing a flick of her wrist, and the head would be in her hand, and the chicken would be hopping around on the yard. I've even been around when I've seen people in the country slaughter swine or other animals for consumption in Maasai land down in Africa. We were there and they pulled out four goats and killed them all for our meal there in Maasai land in Africa. Listen, when you eat something that you have seen butchered and killed, your attitude about that meal is very different from what it would be when you go to the supermarket and get a steak that's packaged up, wrapped up in cellophane, and you can forget that that steak is actually life. What you are eating is life. Fowl, cattle, swine, fish, assorted forms of animal life die that we might eat and that we might live. And so Jesus proclaims that what food is to your body, so will I be to your soul. So the Lord's Supper is the symbol of that. The bread, the fruit of the vine, the juice of the grape symbolize our Lord's body. And they symbolize our Lord's blood. Can I talk to you for a while? Spurgeon has said that bread has to pass through many tortures before it becomes food to us. The wheat from which the bread was made was sown in the ground. The kernel of wheat lay there in the ground until it died. And then it sprang up through the crust of the soil. It was exposed to cold wind and to hot sunshine before it was ripened. And then when it grew, it was cut down by a sharp sickle. After being cut down, it was threshed, and then it was ground into flour, and then made into dough, and the dough was kneaded into bread, which was cast into a hot oven and baked until it was brown. And then it was broken or cut with a knife. All of these processes are images of suffering. So the broken bread, which we eat at communion, sets forth the suffering of Jesus Christ. And then Spurgeon goes on to say that the juice of the grape also sets forth suffering. For the clusters of the grapes were snatched from the vine, cut from the vine, and then flung together into the wine press and pressed until their life's blood spurted forth. And even so was our Savior pressed 
in the winepress of Jehovah's wrath till his blood was poured forth on our behalf. End of quote. Thus the bread and the fruit of the vine symbolize the suffering of Jesus Christ. And you should never come to the table of the Lord without understanding that our Lord suffered that we might have the privilege of coming to this table. But not only did he suffer, for when flesh and blood are separated, then death occurs. And if the blood drains from the body, then the body dies. And in the communion, the bread representing the flesh of Jesus is not mixed with the wine, but taken separately, representing the fact that Jesus not only had to suffer for our sins, but Jesus also had to die for our sins. In 1 Corinthians 11 and 23, the apostle Paul said, I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, and this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup, and when he had supped after supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth or proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is the most expensive meal that you will ever eat because it dramatically portrays the awful price that Jesus had to pay for our salvation. It's not something that we do casually, nonchalantly, because we always do it on the first Sunday. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. The Lord's Supper helps us to remember Jesus. I said it helps us to remember Jesus. It helps us to keep Jesus on our minds. And in this hectic day, it's so easy to forget about Jesus. But tell your neighbor, don't forget about Jesus. The Bible warns God's people, don't forget Jesus. It's so easy to get involved in the work of the Lord that we forget the Lord of the work. Don't forget the Lord of the work and all that you do and all that you strive to accomplish. Don't forget Jesus. When you're worshiping, let Jesus be the center of your mind, not who's preaching, not who's singing. Get involved in the worship so that your mind will be on Jesus. Everybody yell out that wonderful name, Jesus. Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Moses warned us, when you drink from wells that you did not dig, when you live in houses that you did not build, when you eat from vines that you did not plant, beware lest you forget the Lord thy God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Listen, the Lord's Supper helps us to remember Jesus and say, Jesus, I'll never forget 
what you've done for me. Jesus, I'll never forget how you set me free. Jesus, I'll never forget how you brought me out. Jesus, I'll never forget. No, never, never forget. Clap your hands and give praise to God. I'm almost through. The Lord's Supper lets us know how close Jesus wants to be. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. He uses two words to explain what he means. By eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Cometh and believeth. Ancient men would identify with their sacrifices at many times by consuming him. And we identify with Jesus Christ by believing on him. And by coming unto him. The Bible says, he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek after him. And Jesus said in John 7 and 37, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus said, come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He that cometh to me is symbolically, spiritually consuming my flesh, and he that believeth on me is drinking my blood. And when you can go to Jesus for yourself, I said you can go to Jesus for yourself. You have to go through a church. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through a minister. You can go to Jesus for yourself. We have not a high priest who cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities, but who was tempted in all points like as we are, and yet without sin. And therefore we can come boldly to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in the time of need. And so this table tells us that Jesus wants to be very close to us. And so many people come to God with the mentality of wanting to be as far away from him as they can and still be in him. You hear their philosophy saying, Lord, do I have to do this to be saved? Do I have to do that to be saved? When our attitude really ought to be, Lord, how close can I be? How much can I receive from you? How much can I do to bring you glory and to bring you praise? How much of your power? How much of your salvation? How much of your anointing can I receive? Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, we need everything we can get from the Lord. And so eating his flesh and drinking his blood is coming to him and believing on him. I said it's coming to him 
and believing on him. And so the Bible again lets us know that we've got to have an appetite for Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Is there anybody here that has an appetite for Jesus? You want more and more. I know we have many appetites. An appetite for food. An appetite for pleasure. An appetite for wealth. But we've got to have an appetite for Jesus. For the Bible says, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled are there any hungry people in the house today are there any thirsty people in the house oh bless his name oh bless his name the day is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father seeketh such to worship him god is looking for some hungry people god is looking for some motivated people hungry people don't worship like unmotivated apathetic people worship an apathetic person does not care whether he gets the power or not an apathetic person does not care whether he feels the spirit or not an apathetic person does not care whether the holy ghost shows up or not but a person who has an appetite for jesus says lord oh lord i need your power lord i need your anointing came. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your power. Fill me. Come on and give God praise. Give God praise. Give God praise. The Lord's Supper. I said the Lord's Supper lets us know that we have no life without Jesus. I said no life without Jesus, John 6, 53, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You might feel that you're living, but you're not really living until you've met Jesus. You're not really living until he's living in your heart, in your mind, and in your spirit. You have no life. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The Lord's Supper lets us know that we can be in him and he will be in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He said, except you abide in me and my word abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. I don't know about you, but I wanna be so close that I'm in him and so close that he's in me. That's the only way I can make it by the power of God. I've told you before how Sister Blake will every once in a while cut up some cucumbers and put them in a bowl, fill that bowl with vinegar and with salt and with spices and let it marinate in the refrigerator for a while and then I'll come along 
it's my turn then to take over. I began to eat those cucumbers, so tasty, so delicious. One day I was there eating a little bowl of cucumbers. I came down to the last little piece of cucumber in the bowl. I picked it up with the fork. On the way to my mouth, it slipped off the fork and fell on the floor. Do you think I let it lay there on the floor? Do you think I threw it away? No, it was the last one. I didn't throw it away. I picked it up, went over to the zinc, and at least I washed it off. And then I popped it in my mouth and went on about my business. Do you think that the Lord will throw you away just because you make a mistake? Do you think that the Lord will throw you away just because you fall? No, the Lord will pick you up. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? He'll pick you up. I said he'll pick you up. Oh yes, he will. And he'll wash you off. Does anybody know the Lord will pick you up? Has he ever picked you up when you're fallen? Oh yes, he will. Oh, bless the name of God. I've got to close. But when I put that cucumber in my mouth and bit into it, amazingly, the taste of the vinegar was still in the cucumber. It had not lost its taste. It had not not lost its tartness. It was still there. The cucumber had so gotten into the vinegar that when it was taken out of the vinegar and washed off, the vinegar and the taste of the vinegar was still in the cucumber. Child of God, you can get so in God. Hallelujah. So in Him that God will be in you. Christ in you. Oh yes. Oh yes. The hope of glory. Jesus. Jesus. Can get on the inside. Lift up your hand and say Jesus. Get on the inside. Live in my life. Move in my life. in his will. Give him glory. Worship him until he gets on the inside. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Say, Lord, I want you on the inside. Oh, bless his name. When you come to the table, you partake of the bread. You partake of the fruit of the vine. And Jesus say, you're doing this in remembrance of me. Hallelujah. The Lord's Supper is the most expensive meal that you will ever eat because Jesus died with nails in his hands. Jesus died with nails in his feet. Jesus died with thorns in his skull. He died with a wound in his side. He hung there for you. He died for you. His body for your body. His life for your life. His blood for your blood. All of us deserve to die for our sins. But Jesus died for us. And on the third day morning, he got up. I said he got up. And he is. I said he is. The bread of life. I said he is. 
the bread of life. What kind of bread is it that when dead men eat it, they come alive? What kind of blood is it that when dead men believe in it, life comes to them? Just as Jesus arose from the dead, we too have new life because of Jesus. We too have life in the world to come. Hallelujah. I don't worry. I said I don't worry about the grave because I know on the other side there's still life. Tell your neighbor, neighbor, don't you worry about the grave because on the other side there is still life. Jesus got up from the grave and one day the trump of God is going to sound. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. We that are alive and remain are going to be changed, changed, changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Hallelujah. I really want to know you. Lord, I really want to live for you. Lord, I don't want to go through empty form and fashion. Lord, this is not just a routine coming to the table and going back to my seat. But Lord, I really want you. I'm hungry for you. Lord, I really want to know you. I want your spirit to abide in me. Lift up your hand and say, Lord, fill me with your power. Lord, fill me with your anointing. Clap your hands. Give God praise. Worship God. Praise him. Bless him. Bless him. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Thank him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for dying. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for rising. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being in my life, in my heart, in my soul, in my spirit. I love you. I love you. Come on, praise him. Praise him.
The Holy Ghost, the power of God, the might of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ is in this room right now. God does not want some cold, distant, impersonal relationship with you. The only reason your relationship with God would be cold and impersonal is that either you choose that it should be or you just don't know what God has in store for you. Hallelujah. If Bill Gates or some other very wealthy, renowned, intelligent person desired a relationship with you, it would be very probable that you would respond very positively that as close as that relationship could be, you would be willing to have such a relationship because you could partake of the wisdom, the knowledge, the skills, the insights, the ability, even the wealth of that person by being closely related to them. The omnipotent God of the universe wants to be close to you. He wants to feel your hurts, your pains, your aspirations. He wants you to feel his passion for you, his love for you, his mercy extended. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him. Some would say, no, I'm busy with stuff. I'm busy with life. I'm busy with my own pursuits. I've got my own stuff going on over here. I've got to watch over this little $40,000, $50,000, $150,000 I make every year when the God that owns all the silver and all the gold in all the universe wants to be your Lord. I want to pray for somebody today. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper and the saints are going to remember what Jesus has done. But some of you cannot rightly, justly partake of the Lord's Supper because you're not a believer. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. So we want to give you an opportunity to accept Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord. I want to give you a chance to come to know him. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, your sins are not forgiven. You've not believed on him. You have not come to him. I want to give you an opportunity to accept him and receive him as Lord. Jesus wants to be close to you. And don't let his testimony be at the end of your life that I wanted to be close to you. I tried to be your friend, but you rejected me and would not accept me as a friend, as a Lord. Don't reject him because only he can transport you into a joyous eternity. Don't reject him because only Jesus can give you real life. Lord bless your children as I minister to them and give them the Lord to accept you and receive you as Savior and as Lord. Touch their hearts now. Draw them to thyself in Jesus' name. If you're here today and you say, Preacher, I want to be saved. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want my sins forgiven. 
Would you pray for me? Yes, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you right where you stand, but I need to know that you desire prayer. If you're here today and you would say, Preacher, I want to believe on Jesus. I want to come to him. I want him to be my Savior and my Lord. If that's you, I'll know that you desire prayer, and I'll pray for you where you stand. If you'll lift your hand as your way of saying, Preacher, include me in this prayer. I need Jesus. I need a change. I need to give my life to the Lord. I'm not going to turn away and follow him no longer. I'm going to accept him and receive him as my Savior. Lift that hand wherever you may be. This is your moment, your time. Preacher, I want to be saved. I want to know Jesus. I want to be very close to him. I want him to be very close to me. Lift that hand if that's you. Lift that hand. I'm about to pray in the name of the Lord. Lift that hand. Lift it high so that I can see it. Dear Lord, I pray for every uplifted hand and for every individual in the room who has said, pray for me. I need Jesus. I want to be saved. I want to give my life to him. I want him to be very close to me. I want his power to be at work in my life. I want to know him. I want to respond to all he's done for me. He's been so good to me. Lord, I pray that you will come into their lives today and set them free and transform them by your power. Everybody say this prayer after me. Dear Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me for the wrong I've done and the wrong I have been. I want to be saved. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died for my sin. I believe he arose from the dead. I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior and as my Lord. And I give my life to him. And I thank you, Lord. I am forgiven. I thank you, Lord. I am saved. I thank you, Lord. I have new life. Clap your hands and give praise to the Lord.